This is a podcast from meow.net. M-I-A-A-W net. Meow! Welcome to Genuine Inquiry, a monthly series of audio essays, each of which interrogates a topic close to our hearts. Hello, my name's Owen Kelly, and I'm here today talking with Hannah Kemp-Welsh. And Hannah is a, is a social practicing sound artist, a sound artist with a social practice. And she works collaboratively and in community settings. And we met at ICAF in Rotterdam. Now, we've done a short series of podcasts from ICAF and about subjects at ICAF, but also there are other aspects of ICAF that we didn't get into. One of those is the fact that we would just meet people and we meet people who are doing things that interest us. And for those, I'm not necessarily running this as an ICAF special, but it's simply that Hannah and I had a conversation on a bus between venues at ICAF in Rotterdam. And one of the things that came up is Hannah's long-term interest in ham radio and feminism. And that struck me as an interesting practice and one that I didn't know very much about. So I thought the simplest way of finding out about it was to ask Hannah there and then. Then the bus stopped and we got out. So I thought the simplest way of doing it other than that would be to invite Hannah on here and have a conversation about it. So can I start, Hannah, by asking you to just briefly introduce yourself? Yes. So um, I think you've actually introduced me pretty well. Maybe I'll add to that that I'm very happy to be here because I'm a huge meow.net fangirl. I'm currently a PhD student studying issues of inequality and socially engaged art and community-based art practices and therefore listening to episodes of Meow and musings on cultural democracy have been really useful to my research. So yeah, for the past 10 years, I have practiced as a kind of socially engaged artist, I guess would perhaps best describe it. And um, the sort of PhD sprung from a feeling that maybe I actually was trapped in a structure within which I wasn't really able to do very good work. And I wanted to, to take a step back and spend a bit of time thinking about that and maybe try and hopefully by the end of it, find a new way to do work that I felt was better or more in line with my own values. And actually my interest in radio that I think you'll ask me about in a minute really sprung from a socially engaged project, which then took me in a new direction. Okay, so what, before we get into that, what, what's the topic of your doctoral research? Uh, it's called uh, Listening in Socially Engaged Art, Artistic Strategies for Equitable Collaboration. And is it practice-based or are you doing historical research or both? It is practice-based, but you know, in terms of historical research, I have just written a chapter, which is your book has been extremely helpful too. So thank you for that one. <laughs> All right, thank you. Okay, then let's move on to talk about ham radio. Now, I'm going to confess my probable ignorance on this because I I had assumed, and from our brief conversation on the bus, I realized I'd assumed wrongly, which is where the idea for this conversation sprang from. I had assumed that ham radio was one of those historical things like black and white television or uh, 78 records, 78 RPM records, that had had its day in the sun and had more or less disappeared by now, perhaps remaining, because nothing ever disappears culturally, so remaining like Morris dancing or train spotting as some sort of very small, something of, very, of interest to a very small group of people. But I understood from our brief conversation that this is not true. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. <laughs> 
Um, I guess perhaps the best way to describe it is that, as I understand it, ham radio and tinkering with amateur radio was a very popular hobby. And that popularity has gone with the advent of new different kinds of forms of communication, especially mobile phones. And therefore, the function that it had that people were most attracted to has been, you know, replaced again and again and again now. And so for those reasons, young people are no longer being recruited into the hobby. So it's kind of, you know, I, I hope this is fair to say it, it appears to be a dying hobby where it's widely known that amateur radio clubs are populated by men of retirement age, pretty much mainly men. Uh, and I've spoken to people in amateur radio societies up and down the country, all over Europe and beyond. And I very rarely, but sometimes do, meet younger generations who usually did a sort of amateur radio project as a sort of child or teenager and then didn't continue it later on. And so you know, and not active in amateur radio societies or sort of pursuing the development or propagation of the hobby. But all the people in the amateur radio societies that I have kind of encountered and worked with or have taught me or I have um, worked with have all been of a very similar demographic, which is uh, kind of people who were during their careers, usually engineers uh, or worked in similar fields and uh, now pursue this as a hobby and they're usually quite um, of a particular sort of socioeconomic demographic as well I would say it's primarily kind of middle class uh, and in my experience all white men uh, and um, you know I've been kind of on a tour of various people's radio shacks the shack is uh, not necessarily as I would uh, kind of imagine it you know, a, sh a shack as in a sort of wooden building in the wild, although some people do have such a, a shack, but it sometimes is just a room in someone's house where all their radio equipment is. But um, I have been on a tour of people's shacks and very, very much enjoyed that. Okay, so what do all these elderly white men actually do when they engage in ham radio? So this was my first question to them as well. And this is why I got so interested in trying to do something different. And this is why I thought that there could be a different and feminist approach. Shockingly to me, what these people do is they have a kind of piece of technology, which is called a transceiver, which allows you to both transmit and receive a radio signal. And what they do is they have antennas on their shacks and they use their technology to transmit what's called a CQ call or a sort of shout out into the ether on a particular frequency, which has been allocated to amateur radio enthusiasts. And they basically shout into the ether, hello, hello, is anyone there? But what that sounds like in radio code or language is CQ, CQ, is anyone there? Do you copy? And so if somebody else is listening out for such a contact, so they'll be in their shack, they will be tuned to that calling frequency, and they'll be listening to see if anyone is out there wanting to make a contact, then they will respond and they will say, yes, this is M7HKW, I copy. And then they will give each other what's called a signal report. So they will say, I can read you five and nine, five and nine. How do you read me? And the other person will respond, I can read you four and eight. Now, five and nine denotes the strength of signal and its readability or clarity. So they will do like a signal report to each other, which is basically, how well is my technology functioning? 
they will usually ask each other their location. And then some people or most people will keep a listening log. So they will write down in their log, I contacted somebody in the Antarctic or Germany or Thailand at this time on this date. And they had a readability of this and a signal strength of this. And they told me that I had a signal strength and a readability of this. And that's it. That's the end. And to me, this is astonishing because the amazing fact of this contact with a stranger across the globe and the potential there for collaboration, for exchanges of views, for new understanding is, you know, phenomenal. And the fact that, you know, the, 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 the main focus of your conversation is about the strength of your signal is just, you know, I can't understand that. So this is where my interest sparked. It reminds me of old men sitting in pubs talking about beer. And I I can remember being equally astonished by this. People would go to a pub, order a pint of beer and sit down and talk to people about how good or bad the beer is compared to the beer they could have got if they'd gone into the pub over the road. Yes, that's always struck me as as odd. So the the technology forms both the means of communication and the topic of communication. Yes, absolutely. I interviewed quite a few amateur radio enthusiasts actually using the medium of the technology in order to conduct the interviews. And I tried to ask them, you know, some of these sort of questions. And it seems that there is a sort of, you know, less spoken about layer underneath this, which is that people often said things like that men... Uh, are less socialized in society to have kind of more emotional or deep conversations or to express feelings or, and some of those feelings could be, for example, loneliness. And that as men reach retirement, sometimes they actually end up feeling quite isolated and therefore making contact with other people, although maybe all they're doing is testing their signal strength and kind of talking about technology. It may actually for some people be a kind of, someone used the word lifeline, like really a way to connect with other human beings. So, you know, there is a kind of interesting dimension there about, you know, sociability and, um, you know, what happens as we grow older. So what did you decide could be a different use for ham radio? Well, I was really interested in lots of aspects. One of them was, you know, I would love to meet people from all around the world via a kind of obscure technology, which where the technology sort of dictates who I'm able to reach. I was interested in the technology from the perspective of the environment and I guess uh, the sort of materiality of it or its connection with location. So what interests me, for example, is that your radio signal has to uh, interact with the earth. So it is grounded. So you are literally making a point of contact with the earth to connect your radio gear up to and also to have a long antenna as long as possible in the sky. So you've got the earth, you've got the sky. And then what you're doing with your signal is you are trying to do what's called propagation, which is basically kind of sending it as far as possible. And this happens via bouncing a signal off the ionosphere, which is a layer of charged particles surrounding the earth. And this is all very variable depending on things like the weather, the sunspot cycle, space weather, etc. And so how your signal propagates or how far it is able to travel is very much to do with the earth and the environment. And so for me, there were some interesting questions there about how we understand the environment via this technology, how we connect to the place that we're in via this technology, but also how we can then use this technology to connect with other people uh, for exchanges of views in different sorts of ways. 
But I kind of got the sort of, I, I suppose, at a, at a simpler level. Uh, what always interests me in my practice is access. And I did not find amateur radio or ham radio to be a very accessible practice, partly because you need a license in order to transmit a message and partly because the technology is very expensive, but also because of the way in which it is taught. So when you are doing your license, you will go to a course. And what's wonderful is that the course is often free of charge because it's run by amateur radio societies, which are mostly composed of retired men. And so they put on courses for free, but they these uh, most of the time these men were did had their careers as engineers and therefore didn't necessarily learn about pedagogy as part of their career. They're not trained teachers, and the way in which amateur radio is taught, I found, assumed a whole load of knowledge which I did not have, and was taught in what I felt was quite a gendered way. There was um, a lot of rote learning involved, a lot of kind of memorizing of things for which you were given absolutely no explanation. And um, and I found I really struggled. It was very difficult for me. I did pass my exam. I did get my license. But, you know, honestly, I've forgotten most of what I learned because there was no kind of application of the learning. It was just memorize this equation and maybe you'll need to know it one day, reminiscent of how, you know, kind of fractions or maths was taught to me at school, which is, you know, only one of the excuses I use for being very bad at maths today. But I wanted to find some way to, you know, I was excited by the potential of this hobby, but I wanted to share it with people who, um, you know, perhaps would, would help me to think about it in these sort of creative or collaborative ways, rather than always from the perspective of technology first. And in order to be able to have these conversations with people and to introduce people to the hobby, you know, they would have had to do this, you know, what I found very painful training program. And I wanted to find some alternative way to teach this. So you founded Shortwave Collective for this purpose, is that right? Yes, uh, I um I was I, I kind of I had was given a sort of artist a, a small artist commission during the pandemic to uh, teach a workshop basically about anything that I liked, and so I taught a, a kind of introduction to amateur radio, and several women or in fact, quite a few women came to this, probably because it was being taught by a woman and it was being advertised as an art workshop through artist circles as an introduction. And so I gave this presentation and I asked people at the end of the presentation whether or not they'd like to stay in touch or know more. And several women contacted me to say they would. And so I suggested that we form a kind of group and that we meet up and learn together and that we do a sort of peer learning model. And so this kind of collective formed in this way where... Uh, you know, maybe a, maybe a few, maybe few of us, a fewer of us at first, but now ten of us meet every month or more frequently on Zoom. And we began by literally getting some wires and starting to build a basic circle together on video camera, uh, and to ask each other what we thought each part did, and we would kind of divide up some roles to say, okay, you go away and find out how an antenna works and report back to us. Someone else will go away and find out what the hell a diode is. Someone else will find out what the word induction means. And then we'll all come back together next month and we'll share what we learn. So that way we kind of, you know, created a, a series of resources. And then actually we decided that the best way to learn is through practical application. And so we kind of started to work on projects, uh, which were for us artistic in nature. Um, but they were sort of based on new ways of thinking and learning about this radio technology. 
And what does Shortwave Collective do, or what are the plans for Shortwave Collective in the in the future? Well, some of the things once that you've I'm... learned once you've learned to make the radios and you've learned to communicate with each other, and you want to avoid just talking about the radios you've built. How are you going to infuse the shortwave radio culture with your feminist cultural practices? Where do you see this going? Uh, well, um, I'm not sure. That kind of sounds maybe like there's an outcome in mind or that you begin somewhere and end somewhere else. And I don't know if it is uh, kind of going in an upward trajectory linear pr- process in that way. I suppose some of the things that we have been doing, which uh, we hope to continue and which we want to develop are that we've been building very simple homemade radios and delivering lots of workshops for other people to learn how to do that. And through that, we've been doing sort of um, applied learning creative process where we've been sharing what we know about radio technology with a new generation of people and within a new context of it being sort of creative learning rather than engineering or science learning. So we're not working within a STEM kind of field. So we've been doing lots of workshops like that, but we've also been creating new sort of artistic work and new thinking and writing about listening as an experience. So we have been doing some presentations with uh, art schools and at summer schools, like the Listening Academy was one, for example, where we were talking about the experience of listening collectively from many locations and what it's like to be stood with your fragile piece of wire on top of a hill in Scotland or attaching your fragile piece of radio wire to a fence which you're trying to turn into a larger scale antenna from another location and listening for these little fragile pieces of reception which could be tuning in and out which could be broadcasting or from which position you could hear multiple stations at once and what is that experience of listening and how could that connect you to your location how can that situate you where you are and what does that mean when you're doing it in a process with other people as well so one of the things that we did was we did a 22-hour radio broadcast for a radio art festival in Luxembourg where we collected over the course of many months little recordings of us in different places around the world and also from the kind of places where we live and work where we were out and about with our homemade radios and we were describing with our voices the situation of our listening, the time of day, but also what we could hear. And we kind of collected 22 hours of material and we broadcast that to think about listening um, to radio in this new way or what we call radio listening as one word with a uh, an apostrophe. And what we're up to now is we are... Well, we have uh, a couple of different projects, one of which is that we are the artists in residence at Struer Tracks Festival in August, which is uh, in a place called Struer in Denmark. And we're going to be experimenting with creating new pieces of technology which will help our radio circuits, so little preamps and homemade speakers, to again be thinking about um, making 
technology more accessible and cheaper and simpler because I think one of the things that we really notice about technology is it always now comes in these ubiquitous black boxes I'm holding my phone in my hand and I don't know really what's inside this phone I don't know what's inside my computer I have no idea how any of it works and how can I challenge any of this if I have absolutely no idea what it is or how it works so I think there is something for me about feeling a bit more empowered through information about how some technology works making it feel more available and accessible to other people as well And so, you know, one of these things is about kind of technology, but it's really about technology with other people. It's about making together, about sharing sharing and learning in these ways. And we're also thinking about the citizen band, which is the 11 meter band. People, it was once a more popular hobby than it is today, using CB radios, citizen band radios, which was a way to communicate via radio where you actually didn't need a license. It's still perhaps more commonly used in America by truck drivers, a kind of way of making a very local um, broadcast or receiving a signal which is operating very locally. And we feel that there's, poten- that there's potential there for kind of more local communications and to start conversations. So really, this is a very long-term project for us, which could involve transmission. You know, it has many directions in which it could go. Okay, I've got two questions from that, uh, which go in opposite directions. So I'll do them one at a time. The first one is concerning the workshops you've been doing where people have been making radios. I suppose the simplest way to put my question is to say, why do they make these radios? In other words, I understand why people uh, use Raspberry Pis to explore what's going on behind the scenes in their computers. And I understand why people learn coding to understand how what's going on behind their computers actually works. And I understand why those kinds of activities are empowering. But what in the 21st century do I gain from attending your workshop and building my radio? What do I do with my radio when I go home? I think the great thing about the radio is that unlike the Raspberry Pi or your computer, etc., there's no chips. So the radios are literally made from garden wire and a tent peg. That's it. There's nothing fancy about it in a way that other workshops which explore technology, they do come with soldering, prefabricated parts, etc. That's not the case with our radios. They're incredibly simple. And what you gain by it, I think, is an understanding of what's happening in the air in which you are standing right now. So what you hear through your radio is signals which are all around us, like radio is circling this way and that way. And it's almost like getting a fishing net and catching a bit of air and seeing what sound you can take from that bit of air that you've caught. Okay, then talk me through this a a bit more, because the radios I would make in your workshop are receivers, not transceivers, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I will get the experience of constructing something out of household materials, very simple, non-digital household materials. And for a brief magic moment, I will access a random set of, of radio waves that are within the vicinity, and I am, I am listening to them. Other than becoming a ham radio enthusiast, how do I take what I've just learned 
and my excitement about what I've just learned and do something with it with other people? Well, there's a few different things that we've been doing, but I think it is about listening together and about the exciting experience of doing a creative action with others, you know, because the things that you actually hear. So, for example, I did a workshop in, with a shortwave collective and we were in Liverpool and we built all these radios with children and elderly people in a library in Sefton and all we could hear through our radios, we had very strong signal, we could hear talk sport. And we thought the irony here of having done a feminist kind of radio building workshop to amplify the voices of men talking about football was not lost on us, you know, but there was something for, for us, it's not so much about what you can sort of hear. Sometimes it is because sometimes you can hear some things from very far away or you can hear little crackly textures of spherics, which are these atmospheric disturbances of radio waves emitted by lightning. There's sometimes there is some sort of magical beauty in what you hear, which can make you uh, kind of feel more connected to faraway places or the earth or other things. But it is about the kind of shared experience of listening together. And, you know, kind of being out in the wild, in the environment with your little fragile piece of uh, antenna wire and seeing what there is with other people. It's the kind of excitement of the experience, which I find to be the most intriguing. My second question is uh, about CB radio, because in contrast to, to ham radio, my understanding is that CB radio doesn't require licensing and doesn't require uh, bizarre and obscure technical knowledge. And if it's still the case, you can get them from Tandy's or, or an electronic shop, and you can get yourself a, a CB radio. Is that that's still the case, I believe? Uh, yes? Yes, 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 you can, absolutely. You know, they are more and more difficult to buy, but yes, you can. Um and yes, there is something very nice about being able to transmit your signal out. I suppose that's a sort of secondary area. You know, we do a lot of stuff about listening and seeing what is already there uh, rather than uh, at the moment transmitting things for other people to hear. But there is lots of potential there for kind of creating new networks and nodes. I always think about those activists at the moment who are um, kind of creating small internet nodes because of the danger of during protests and demonstrations, the government shutting down telecommunications networks. So activists kind of set up little alternative nodes and networks for people to be able to continue to organize if state infrastructure takes that uh, down. So, you know, there is some potential for CB radio within these kinds of activist projects as kind of insurance as well. Okay, let me ask a third question then, which is which is combines the first two uh, in a happy mist of ignorance. Is there a way in which we can build CB radios? Are we being people who are not professional radio engineers? The reason I ask that is partly because of what you just said. Uh, there is a, a set of there are a set of advantages to being able to transmit as well as receive. And that is a way in which we could instill community into the process of, of radio. And I'm also thinking what you also just said, that places like Dixon's or 
Radio Shack or Tandy have all gone the way or started to go the way of record shops. And so whereas in 1992, we could have walked into any number of high street shops and come out with a CB radio kit, as you said, that's getting harder and harder. So does that mean CB radio will disappear? Is there a way in which, when I say we, I mean we in the most general sense, we can learn to build CB radio kits ourselves? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I don't see why not. And I think, you know, part of the work that we are keen to do is to make that process as simple as possible. You know, I always like to do things which avoid soldering because soldering <laughs> irons are expensive and soldering can be fiddly and also not, you know, not so accessible to children. You know, so I would always try and deconstruct things to the simplest possible parts and um, but, you know, this is also, it's, it's kind of also about trying to find ways to make this affordable, because unfortunately, the way that, you know, everything works now is that things which should be cheaper if you do it yourself are actually not cheaper, because it's cheaper to mass manufacture something in countries where you pay people extremely poor money for their labor and extract natural resources at unfair prices so you know actually getting hold of copper or garden wire can end up being in order to make your own things can end up being more expensive financially but there is perhaps also kind of um environmental or ecological uh, arguments to be made that it's not cheaper for the environment for us to go out and buy you know pieces of plastic which have been shipped thousands of miles around the world and stored in huge air-conditioned warehouses for 30 years since someone last bought a cb radio <laughs> right i i did look on amazon before we started talking and you can get cb radios but uh still but they are they are all uh with a couple of exceptions they're all over a hundred dollars or a hundred euros mm. so as you say they're not uh they're not something that somebody would buy on spec in order to see if they liked it mm. so, which was why i was wondering if it was possible to run workshops on, on where people would build them. The difficulty, I suppose, being that when you're building radios the way you're building them, you're not particularly concerned with what frequencies they're picking up. Whereas if you start building a CB radio, you are by law, international law, limited to broadcasting at a certain frequency within some parameters. So you would have to, therefore, you couldn't just casually build something and start broadcasting. No. And in fact, probably you would want to have an intermediate license of amateur radio in order to be doing the building because your intermediate license is actually where you kind of um, are given the sort of legal authority in order to start experimenting with devices that you've made yourself. And so you probably want somebody who has that license in order to uh, be the person making the designs for a homemade CB radio. I'm not sure about the kind of legality of making them yourself without a license, but I think if you could guarantee that you weren't going to be interfering with other frequencies where police and ambulance, etc., uh, have been allocated those frequencies, then you could probably get away with it fine. Um, but yes, it is about power, the amount of power that you have in your radio and also the frequency because that dictates how far your signal is reaching and um, the frequency range that you are likely to hit. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, is there anything 
that from my position of ignorance, I failed to ask you that you wish I had asked you? Um, I think, you know, some of the, the, the stuff that I found really interesting has been as well about natural radio. So not about listening out for commercial broadcasts, but, you know, my sort of interest really began when I was um, trying to listen for uh, lightning strikes. There's this amazing man called Stephen P. McGreevy, who is a sort of legendary figure who lives uh, off-grid somewhere in the Nevada desert. And he uh, occupies his time by building little, very low-frequency radio receivers where you can listen to the aurora. And it has this magical sound. He has this kind of um, website where you can listen to his uh, auroral chorus recordings. And so I think for me, there is also something really amazing about being able to listen to uh, the, to natural radio as well as listening out to man-made signals. And I've very much enjoyed that. But I also spent some time in Barrow and Furnace in Cumbria, which is the home of BAE Systems, who produce the submarines that house uh, you know, I won't use the word deterrent, but the UK's nuclear weapons system. And uh, submarines use very low frequency radio in order to communicate with their home station above ground. And so I, you know, was sort of envisaging one day a project of very low frequency radio receivers so people could do a sort of submarine watch you know you wouldn't be able to hear what the in kind of words and language what the submarines are saying to their base stations but you know sometimes these kinds of structures of power are deliberately hidden away from us you know when they talk about the cloud the internet cloud it's not a cloud it is a huge data center somewhere which is generating huge amounts of power and when you know they talk about kind of nuclear weapons it's as though it's a sort of you know mysterious thing you don't know where it is but we do it's on submarines and it's circling around the shores of Britain and there could be an accident that could blow us all up and one of the other things that I discovered was that Radio 4 they have a today program which is the transmitter the transmission of it happens from a, a nuclear bunker and this is because our submarines that have got uh, um, Trident nuclear weapons system, they've got a special box with the final instructions from um, Rishi Sunak, presumably at the moment, or whoever is in charge at the time. And these submarines are instructed that if they lose radio communication with their base station, then they are to listen out for the Today program. And if they can't hear the Radio 4 Today program for two days in a row, then they must assume that Great Britain has fallen and they open the box and enact the final instructions, which could be, you know, nuke Russia, nuke China, defer to the Americans, you know, who knows? And so, you know, some of these kinds of sort of structures that exist, um, you know, which rely on radio, uh, I think are interesting to, to explore as citizens and interrogate. I think I think I agree with you there. Okay, thank that. I think that's a wonderful place to end. And I particularly like the idea of, which I hadn't fully understood before this conversation, the idea of radio as a natural phenomenon, listening to radio in thunderstorms, listening to the aurora chorus, etc. And I think that, again, opens up a huge number of possibilities for cultural collaboration and cultural action. And I think democratically gaining access to that 
is is a, a way of lifting a veil on a whole an area which most people are wholly ignorant of. So thank you very much, Hannah. I shall place a series of links on our website, both to your own website, to Shortwave Collective, to Soundcamp, and some background information that uh, I have managed to discover in preparation for this interview uh, about natural phenomena and radio and uh, the history of amateur radio. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.